Most long journeys will have their fair share of ups and downs. You start out excited, looking for the great things that are about to be, the destination where you're headed, the people you're with. But it's not very long until you realize that there's some challenges that await you. There's some frustrations that are probably going to take place and maybe even a little boredom along the way. This past week, my wife and I, Carla, we drove to Texas, Dallas, Texas. You heard me. We drove. And <laughs> my wife doesn't like to fly, and that's kind of our pattern. So we take a lot of road trips, and we drove to Dallas. And we had a lot of excitement for the trip. We were looking forward to going. Uh, it was the love of our daughter and her new husband that we were attending a reception down in Dallas, Texas, where he is from. And so we were energized and excited to be there. But of course, along the way, we ran into our troubles. We had uh, slowdowns, road closures, detours. We had high winds. We had all kinds of things that happened along the way. Truck drivers that think they own the planet. Um, uh, there were construction zones that said, you know, the next 23 miles, you know, you have to reduce your speed. And th many of those, we saw no cones, no workers, no equipment. I'm a little bit frustrated with that. Anyway, so we, we had a, an amazing time, saw a lot of beautiful country, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't all perfect. And of course, we had lots of conversations. When you drive 10 inches apart from your spouse for 10 hours a day for three days, you get a lot of conversations in, and it's kind of great. And by the way, my wife is a, a very good sport about all of this, uh, um, and we, we make it fun along the way, and I, and I treasure those times with her. In fact, we play a little game. Uh, I don't know what you do on long road trips, but one of the games we play is, you know, little trivial things. We bet. We bet each other. We're high-stakes people, so our bets are always like a million dollars, okay? <laughs> and uh, we didn't really play that game too much on this trip, uh, but I, I'm, I'm glad to tell you today that... Actually, Carla owes me $5 million. Um, and I know she's got it. I don't know where she's got it, but she's got it. She just has it. I'm trying to get her to pay off. But, and then I think about it, and I realize, wow, you know, I owe her everything. So, you know, putting up with me all these years, so actually, I think it's a pretty straight deal. But anyway, journeys can be that way. Spiritual journeys can be that way, too. Have you found in your spiritual journey... Sometimes the excitement wanes, sometimes the challenges come in, sometimes there's high winds, sometimes there's construction zones, sometimes there's things that just don't go the way you plan, there are detours, there are things that you don't like. Well, that's true for all of us. All of us at times have these moments where we kind of wonder, is the journey really worth it? And the one who sent us on the journey, is he really faithful? And if it were not for the love that we had for our daughter and our new son-in-law, we would have probably turned the car around and gone home. And if it were not for the love we have for Jesus and our understanding that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, we probably would turn our car, spiritual car around too at times. And gratefully, he keeps us going. And today, we want to think about how in our lives these trials can really get us down. And let me share with you a couple of experiences I've had recently with people in our church uh, there's a young couple in our church who were trying to have children, and um, they went to the doctor. They tried for a while, and nothing had happened. So they go to the doctor, and they find out they're infertile, um, which is devastating news. And they remembered the day they were at the doctor that on that very day, we were having our prayer room open as one of our prayer and fasting days. 
And so they thought, we, what else can we do but to go and pray with people? And so they left the doctor and drove straight to this church, and they went into our prayer room, and there are a few of us gathered around, and we prayed for them. They were in tears. There was sorrow. There was hurt. There was confusion. And, and we prayed and asked God for his will and asked God for him to do the impossible. And lo and behold, about three or four weeks later, uh, she was pregnant, and God did an amazing work. But, but I, hate to, I hate to say this, but then just a few weeks after that, she lost the baby. Devastating. I mean, your hopes. And thankfully, you know, they have a vision of, this couple has a vision of godly prayer, which is not genie in the bottle kind of praying, but a, a father that knows what's best and knows timing in our lives. And so they're good, they're trusting God, but devastating, devastating stuff. I'm working with some families right now whose marriages are hanging in the balance because of some indiscretions. And there's so much hurt and so much pain and so much anger. And what is God, where is God? And what is God doing in all of this? And, and maybe today you're sitting here realizing you've got some stuff going in your life too. And, and maybe on the outside it looks okay, but in the inside you're sort of begging the question of why is God allowing this stuff to happen to me? Why, why does it seem like I'm struggling with things that I, I should be experiencing more joy in or more lasting uh, fulfillment in my life, and I've got these trials and problems. Well, today we want to struggle with this issue that um, last week Pastor Danny showed us that the, from the life of Peter that in one moment he's at the top of the world. Remember, who do people say that I am? Well, some say, you know, uh, John the Baptist, some say uh, Elijah or one of the prophets, Jeremiah. Uh, and then Jesus turns it very personally. Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter gets it right. I mean, this is the one moment where Peter really says it right. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yay, everything's exciting. And we learned last week that we shouldn't be so excited in those moments because just a few minutes later, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to suffer at the hands of the teachers and chief priests of the law, and he's going to suffer and die, and he's going to rise again from the grave. And suddenly, Peter can't handle that, and so he takes Jesus aside, and he says, oh, come on, you know, like, this can't be happening, and rebukes Jesus, rebukes Jesus. That's because Peter brought his human agenda. Pastor Danny insightfully pulled out last week, powerful message, and a human agenda with even great theology is a recipe for disaster. But today, we want to wrestle with the fact that although Jesus at times invites us into big moments like he did with Peter, sometimes just knowing our circumstances and knowing our life, he's not necessarily inviting us into moments, to, to big moments, but he's actually going to take us and show us something big about himself. He's going to reveal something about himself that we would not see otherwise. He's going to reveal his glory to us. And I think that there are moments in all of our lives, and maybe for some of us here today, that need to be reminded that this is what the Lord does out of his love and out of his uh, heart for us, he wants to give us a fresh vision of his glory. And this is what's happening here in Matthew 17. If you haven't opened your Bibles to that, hopefully you will and you can kind of look at it, follow along with me. But in Matthew 17, we see this fresh vision of, of the glory of Jesus. And here we see Jesus being transfigured before him. It's a weird word in the Greek language. It, it literally means to be transformed from within, to have an outer expression metamorpho, it's the same word we get metamorphosis from, the, you know, the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. There's just no mistake that there's a giant change that's going on here. And this is what Jesus is doing. He takes his disciples 
from Caesarea Philippi, and they're heading their way back to Capernaum, and there's a very high mountain. Some think it's Mount Hermon. That's a really high mountain, 9,000 feet. Probably not there. They probably wouldn't have gone all the way up there to spend the night. There's another couple of mountains in that region. Probably Mount Menor is the word or the mountain that they're in, about 3,900 feet, probably the same dimension as Mount Diablo, say, for example. And they wandered their way up there, and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he gets them alone by themselves, and he wants to give them a fresh vision of who he is. And just like we learned last week that spiritual growth happens with a fresh vision of who Jesus is, so we're going to learn today that there actually is another step that takes place in our lives where we can grow even more, and that is where we begin to see how big God really is and how glorious he really is. Not just having a fresh vision of who he is, but seeing his glory, the secret of God's glory. So if you're taking notes, what I want you to see is that Jesus at times will lead us into these moments that reveal his glory. And you notice he pulls Moses and Elijah in this moment too. And this is a really strange occurrence. Matthew gives no commentary about it. In Luke's commentary about this, Luke says that uh, uh, Peter, uh, excuse me, in Luke Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his soon departure. He's talking about his crucifixion. And Peter is all caught up with this. And both Mark and Luke, when talking about this event, when uh, relating this event in their own gospel record, they say that Peter, when Peter responds in this situation, Peter has no idea what he's saying. He's just totally kind of outside of himself. He can't believe what is going on. And he's terrified. And so the first thing that comes to his mind is he needs to do something. He needs to work to do something. We'll get to that in a minute. But what I want to focus on is this kind of vision that helps us see the glory of Christ plainly. I want to tell you two stories that will illustrate something in my life where I saw Jesus' glory plainly. Now, I've never seen Jesus like I've seen him in Matthew 17. He's never showed up in my room with glorious arraignment and, you know, uh, I've never had that experience. Um, but I have had equally, I believe, just as clearly a picture of Jesus' glory in my life. Let me give you a couple stories about that. One happened years ago. I write about it in my book, uh, The Good Fight, if you want a little bit more detail. But here's the upshot of the whole thing. There was a kid in the youth group that I was a part of serving as a, just out of high school, like some of our high school leaders are, just out of high school. I'm serving uh, with this campus club called Campus After Dark. And there's a kid in the group, a kid in the club that's coming to my group, and he's... Uh, He's interested in the gospel, and we're having conversations about it. But along the way, I discover that he's entrenched himself in a lot of uh, dark stuff, the occult, actually. He had invited uh, evil spirits to actually come into his life. He wanted power. He wanted to do things that, uh, you know, in the paranormal experience kind of thing. And, and he willingly kind of shared this stuff with me. And it was a little odd, a little weird. I wasn't sure where to go with it, but kept talking to him about the gospel and how Jesus could change his life. And one night he shows up at our church, at a church service there, that little Baptist church across the bay. And these evil manifestations began to kind of make themselves known. And I you know, don't want to go, you can read about it a little bit more. But the point is, this guy just kind of came unleashed. And the, the shackles and the chains of his life were being... Um, uh, stretched and Jesus was there and there was, you know, we, we go off to this little room and there's people praying outside and we're talking to him and all these different voices and languages. It just, it was crazy. It was inexplicable to this day when I think about it. I, I don't even know how to put it all together except 
I saw that night, over a period of about four or five hours, I saw the battle that takes place in the spiritual dimension between evil spirits and the one supreme king, lord of lords and king of kings, dispelled these spirits and set this young man free. And it was, so, it was one of those powerful things I've ever seen in my life. And I was a witness to it. I was a part of it, but really more as sort of a bystander. And I was at the time a janitor in the church. I had the keys to the church. Everyone went home, including Bill, this young man who was changed. His life had been changed. And I went up into the sanctuary and sat down, little sanctuary, seated about 300 people. And I sat right in the middle, I'll never forget. And I just looked up at the cross. It was a dark room. The cross was lit. It was always lit. It was just one of those things or just night and day, the, the lit behind the cross. And I sat there and looked at the cross, and I remember tears coming down my cheeks. I remember being so moved, and all I wanted to do is sit before Jesus and tell him how much I loved him and how, much, how incredible it was to see his power work like that. I mean, with, with clarity and no question about that it was the power of Jesus that set this young man free. And I knew he had set me free too, but kind of having this out-of-body experience and seeing how Jesus commanded these spirits who were creating just havoc in this young man's life and how his feet were placed on a rock that night and his life was changed forever. And I remember, I don't know how long I stayed in that sanctuary, but I remember when I left it, I remember feeling the call of God in my life, that he would have me do nothing else. I was pursuing a career in fire science. I wanted to be a firefighter. I was a volunteer in the Belmont Fire Department. And I remember that night, everything changed for me because I saw a fresh vision of who Jesus was. It changed my life forever. Just a couple of months ago, I had another such experience, a little different in character, but um, I was invited uh, to be a camp counselor at Omega our high school ministry right here, just this past summer, two months to three months ago, whatever, I got the privilege of being a high school counselor. Some of our high schoolers are sitting down here. I miss you guys. I love you guys so much. And you know, th th these kids, I, and, and Pastor Charles, he was so loving to me. He gave me freshman boys to counsel, 13-year-old boys. And at first, I was like, whoa, that's going to be interesting. And these kids, man, I tell you, the first day of camp, I thought, maybe I've been off a little too much. You know, with all my enthusiasm, maybe this is a little too much. But, you know, uh, it, it only took me hours to fall in love with these kids, all of them, and, and the kids in my cabin, and we just had a great time. And through the week, it was a stretch. It stretched every part of my being. It stretched me spiritually, emotionally, physically, everything. But at the end of that week, it was so incredible. And you guys sitting down here, you remember, we go up to the campfire. Remember the last night of camp? And there's a 1,000 kids at Hume Lake, a 1,000. We had a couple hundred of them, a 1,000 there. We go up to this amphitheater where a 1,000 kids are singing with one person who's just leading an acoustic guitar, and we are singing praise for almost an hour, kids standing up, giving testimony, sharing how Jesus has changed their life, how God has made the difference in their life. And it was so beautiful. There was goosebumps. It came over my body. I was just thinking every person on the planet ought to have a moment like this where you see the, the effectual power of the Spirit of God working through the lives of people and, and changing lives, Jesus changing lives. And I remember just going down from that campfire, just thinking, wow, Jesus, you are so amazing. A fresh vision of Jesus. And then, if that were not enough, on the way back, one of the kids in the camp, a senior, uh, who was not in my cabin, but I'd seen the work of God in his life during the week and had a few conversations, and 
And Nick says to me, he says, hey, do, we have, do you have a few minutes? And so, like, sure, we're not going to go to bed tonight anyway. Let's stay up. And so we go out to the basketball court, you know, outside the little cabin area where we were, and Nick opens his heart to me, and he says, you know, I, this week has just changed my life. I feel like I can do nothing else but to give my life to preaching and sharing the gospel with as many people as I can. Will you help me know how to do that? And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, his parents were in my youth group when I was a youth pastor here. And it was just like this beautiful little moment. Nick doesn't even know this. He's sitting right down here. But it was like this beautiful little moment where God says, see, again, I do it again. I do it again and again and again and again and again. And I'm about changing lives. And I'm about making people see a vision for their lives that they would not see otherwise. And sometimes I just take you into that moment. When have you had a moment like that? I've had tons of these moments. I could be here all day. We could do a, a week-long seminar on Larry's moments. I don't know. That'd be... <laughs> Probably be ridiculous. You'd all be bored. But I've had these moments. And a lot of these moments have come on the cusp of situations in my own life where I wasn't sure what was next. Or I wasn't sure if God was really there. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're fighting, you're struggling with what is it that's going on in my life? Why the wreckage? Why the question marks? Why? And, and I want you to see that, that Jesus, on purpose, is going to take us into moments to show us his glory. And why does he do that? If you're taking notes, why does he do this? He does this to encourage our faith, reminding us of who he is. He wants to encourage your faith. He wants to remind you of who you are, who he is, so that you take your eyes off the conflict that you're in and see that you've got a God that is greater than the conflict. And by the way, Matthew 17 also shows us that glory is not incompatible with suffering. Jesus has announced he's going to suffer and die. And in the next parenthesis, we see Jesus showing his glory. Listen, the thing that you are frustrated with most in your life right now is not going to be forever. Glory awaits. Get ready. Don't sweat the conflict today because there's glory coming tomorrow. And you can trust that God is going to have his way and he's going to show you just how beautiful he is. That's, that's how gracious our Savior is to us. And maybe today, I've talked to people out of first and second service, maybe today somebody is going to get that for them today. You're in the crisis right now, and God is going to just part the curtain a little bit and say, don't you forget who I am. I am king of kings. Just like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he parts the curtain. The veil of his flesh was taken aside so they could see the supernatural power of Almighty God in their presence. Wow. Wow. Okay, so what do these moments lead us to do? Well, I've found that moments like these often compel us to do something. Verse 4, enter Peter again into the discussion. And Peter, you know, Peter, I love Peter so much. He reminds me of me a lot, actually. You know, Peter says, it's good for us to be here. Duh. <laughs> You're seeing pre-incarnate glory. Yes, it's good for you to be here. And by the way, Peter, I did this for you. Jesus wanted Peter to see. Remember Peter struggling? No, Lord, you shall never suffer for me. You can't go to the cross. This is not the way. It's my agenda. And Peter is just all upside down. And Jesus says, you know, you need to get fixed, brother. I'm going to take you to a place where I'm going to show you just how glorious I am. And here, Peter, it's like he misses it again. Now I'm going to introduce why Moses and Elijah are there. Remember, who is Jesus? Well, he's, some say he's like uh, John the Baptist or one of the prophets, Elijah. And I think Jesus brings Moses and Elijah into this scene just to give Peter another little test. 
Peter, do you see me as other than everything that you know of in your religious structure? Am I far and away different or am I just one of? Remember, who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus is trying to narrow down the focus of he is not one of many. He is one and only God. And he brings Moses and Elijah in to test Peter's understanding of the law, which was prominent for the Jew, and the prophets, which everyone spoke of the coming Messiah. And I think it was a little test to see if Peter could see this. But Peter kind of misses it, as I'm sure I would have missed it too. All Peter can think about doing is doing something. Don't just stand there, Peter. Do something. And so Peter thinks, okay, uh, and maybe, I'm going to suppose here a little bit, but this could have been the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, three Jewish feasts in the Old Testament that everybody had to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And Tabernacles, believe it or not, as I was studying this, I couldn't believe it, this week, Jews all over the world are celebrating Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. And what they do in that feast is they build little temporary shelters and they decorate them all up, kind of like what we do with Christmas trees. It has nothing to do with the gospel message. But anyway, little side point. But they, they do this little, this little structure and they put decorations on it as a commemoration of their 40 years of living in temporary shelters in the wilderness with the view that one day there'd be a permanent structure, a permanent uh, temple to be in with God and his people forever. Now, we who are of the new covenant, we know that that's been fulfilled in Jesus' coming and giving us his spirit. We are the temple, right? The spirit of God lives within us. And so tabernacle is actually fulfilled in the new covenant by Jesus placing his spirit in us. That's a little side note here, just a little throwing that in for free this morning. But the beautiful thing is, that was a joke. Anyway, the beautiful thing is, tabernacles is actually this week. And maybe Peter thought it would be good to build shelters for Jesus and, of course, Moses and Elijah, kind of seeing them all, all y'all in one. I just came back from Texas. I can say y'all, okay? So <laughs> all y'all in one. And Peter's saying, wait, or Jesus is saying, Peter, you don't get it. And right about this moment, we don't know how much time elapsed, but as Peter was speaking these words, I got to get to work. Got to do something. By the way, just pause right here for a minute. We do the same thing. We get a vision of Jesus, and you know what we do? We think, I got to get serving, and so we start working. And by the way, work has to be done, but there's a point at which sometimes our work replaces our devotion for Christ. We get so busy about the work of the Lord, someone has said, we forget the Lord of the work. That's happened in my life. It's happened in your life, too. And birth in those kinds of moments is religiosity and ritual apart from relationship and doing all kinds of stuff thinking that God's really happy with it when we're really not worshiping, we're just working. Remember in Luke 10 when Mary and Martha came, uh, Jesus came to Mary and Martha's home? And think about Jesus coming into your home. What would you do? Well, the first thing you do is you probably clean it up, right? You clean it up. And that's what Martha's doing, man. She's working hard. She's cleaning house. But Mary says, are you kidding? Jesus coming to our house? I'm not going to do anything but sit before him. And she worships at his feet. And Martha gets so disgusted with this, she comes to Jesus and she thinks Jesus is going to be on his side, on her side. Lord, doesn't it bother you that Mary's sitting right here? In a, in a sense, I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus says, actually, Mary, Mary has chosen the better part. I mean, Martha, it's great that you're serving me, but actually, you know what I prefer? I prefer that you just love me for who I am, that you just worship me, that you linger in my presence. 
And so some of us, you know, I mean, work is important. We've got to do stuff. There's a lot to be done in the kingdom. Amen. But don't forget the worship piece because the worship is what transforms us. It's sitting at Jesus' feet that transforms us. It's being in his presence that transforms us. And there's something about worship that has an intrinsic value of bringing transformation to our hearts. And that's why, by the way, a lot of us can't stand more than an hour and 15 minutes in worship because it gets a little uncomfortable. And the preacher goes from preaching to meddling. (laughs) And that's another joke. Anyway, you missed it. (laughs) And it's hard to be raw and exposed to a living God. And yet this is what he loves. He loves for us to come in and be honest and say, God, here's where I'm struggling. Here's my issues and here's my conflict. And Lord, I don't know where you are right now. And so Jesus says, just sit down and let me show you who I am. Let me reveal to you who I am. So... It's hard to sit still. We've got to get up and do something. But really, the purpose of this whole thing, and here's where we're going to wrap everything up. The purpose of seeing a fresh vision of Jesus' glory is to respond to him in worship. That's it. That's all he wants. Just respond in worship. Instead of don't just stand there, do something, it's more like just don't do something. Stand there. Just linger in his presence. It's so beautiful. And that can happen in a church service like this. It can happen in your way to work in your car. It can happen in the cubicle at work. It can happen in the break room. It can happen in the walk around your block. It can happen in an early morning at the sunset or at the sun, uh, sunrise or at the sunset. It can happen in any number of places. And likely it'll happen even sometime this week where Jesus pulls the curtain and shows you his glory just for a second and you remember who he is. And in that moment, don't run from it. Stay there. Worship him. Thank him. Okay, verses five through eight. Let me show you something here. Worship at its core is marked by a few things. And this is gonna go really fast. I'm not gonna have a whole lot of time, but, but this is, and let me just, let me give a theological truth. This is descriptive, what we're reading here. There's nothing here that says this is what we should do or this is what we should expect. But I'm going to extrapolate a little bit. I'm going to Go up the ladder of abstraction. I'm going to show you that this not only is descriptive, but I think there's something prescriptive here too about what worship can look like in our lives by what happens in verses five through eight, right? Okay, here we go. Number one, an unmistakable sense of God's presence. We worship when there's an unmistakable sense of God's presence. Look at verse five. While Peter was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped him and a voice from the cloud said... Now, for those of you younger generation, the cloud we're talking about here is not the iCloud. It's not, it's not that cloud. It's the only cloud that matters. In the Old Testament, the cloud was a picture, a symbol of God's presence, his felt presence, his palpable presence among his people. And so here we have a picture that worship takes off in our hearts when there's a felt presence, sense of God's presence in our lives. Number two, an awareness of the Father's love for and pleasure in his Son. You know how much the Father loves the Son? We are Trinitarian in our belief. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And here in Jesus' pre, in Jesus' incarnation, we have a picture of the Father's love for his Son. And he's saying it. He's stating it. Do we have a love for Jesus like the Father has for Jesus? We should because that's where worship takes off. A com- number three, a compelling desire to hear and obey Jesus. Verse five, listen to him, God says. Listen to him. Do we listen for Jesus and respond in obedience to what he says? That's worship. 
Number four, a strong conviction of our insufficiency apart from God. Notice that in verse six, the disciples fell down. They're terrified. The presence of God has overwhelmed them. They have no words. They're on their faces. A strong conviction of our insufficiency. We are nothing without him. Number five, a comforting and reassuring touch from Jesus, dispelling our fears. I love this. Verse seven, Jesus comes and touches them. He, he says, get up, don't be afraid. Isn't that beautiful where Jesus shows up and gives us the assurance? And I talk to people all the time at Three Crosses who say, you know, when I first started coming to Three Crosses, the first couple months, all I did was cry during the services. Many of us can relate to that. You know what the reality of that is? Well, it's true for all of us in our spirit. We sense something so beautiful and something so powerful. And what that is is the touch of Jesus in our lives. The touch of Jesus saying, hey, I know it's a mess for your life right now. I know you're going through hard times, but I'm here. I'm with you. I'm not going to bail on you. And then lastly, look at this, a singular focus on Jesus. When they looked up, all they saw was Jesus. I love that. I talked to someone this last week, actually, just before we left for Dallas, who said, you know, they were out of town, they were visiting a church, they wanted to go to church, so they picked a church and they went, and it's a Christian church, said Christian church, but when they got in, the whole service, they never heard the name of Jesus once. And they kept saying things like, praise be, but there was no, no object to the praise, no praise be to the Father, no praise be to the Son, it was just praise be, people loving spirituality void of the true Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How wonderful it is that we come in our hearts and see Jesus only. You know, worship takes off when all our focus is on Jesus and him alone. Have you sensed his presence this morning? It's like the best response we can give to a fresh vision of Jesus is just to worship him. Just don't do something. Stand there. All right, this week in our community study guides, if you're in a community group, there's a section that starts off with, today I will worship Jesus by dot, dot, dot. And you could easily adopt practical objectives for transformational worship this week. Can I just, I'm going to funnel through those same six things. Let me just give you a practical application, how you can worship. Number one, you can worship by practicing God's presence this week. He goes with us. When you leave this auditorium in a few minutes, he's going with you. Don't forget that. Number two, Follow the Father's heart by loving and finding pleasure in Jesus alone. How about that for worship? Just be enthralled with the love for and awareness of Jesus in your life. Number three, listen to and obey whatever Jesus tells you to do this week. You can worship him that way. When he tells you to talk to your neighbor, talk to him. When he tells you to be honest with something going on at work, be honest. When he tells you to love your family, love your family. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's true worship. Number four, humble yourself in the presence of God. You know, the disciples were on their faces. They were terrified. But there's something about that for us that we can also show deference and honor to the one. We don't bring God down to our level. We recognize that he is other than us. Number five, welcome his comfort and touch. You got problems going in your life? Don't push him away. He wants to minister to you. He wants to help you up. He wants to show you how much he loves you. Don't, don't push him back. You know, sometimes we stay in our dysfunctions and our sorrow and our misery far too long. It becomes a comforting blanket to us. Let Jesus bring comfort to your life. Accept his comfort. Welcome it. Rejoice in it. Celebrate it. Lastly, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. All right.
Well, we're out of time, but you know, I'm amazed by the gospel writers. Uh, we find little images of this. For example, in John chapter one, John, remember, writing in his prologue, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his what? Glory. Glory as the one and only sent from God himself. John could never get away from what he saw on that mountain. Peter, in his second epistle, oh, I love this. We'll finish with this. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. Peter never forgot. Just like I never forgot First Baptist, San Mateo, like I never forgot the little basketball court at Hume Lake 2019, or the precious conversations with kids that gave their lives to Christ, or the things that happened this week, or last week, or the two weeks before, where Jesus just parts the curtain a little bit. He says, worship me. Okay? Let's pray.